It is a good morning. I am, I'm really grateful to be in this space with us, leading us this morning as we engage the Word of God. Um, and I want to say thank you, Ashley, for that piece. Um, I love the way that that ends. Uh, as It's not something about perfection, but it's something that we just come into the love of God. And so, um, thank you for that. Could we drop that just a hair, actually? Thanks, Kyle. Yeah, that love doesn't demand perfection. It only asks that we come. It's a great line. This is, this is as I was reflecting on that, that, this is like Christianity at its best, right? That it's not about the perfection we perform. It's about the, uh, the, the invitation that we respond to. In many ways, at its best, Christianity does that. It's an invitation into relationship. And so... Sometimes, I think sometimes we, we make Christianity into a kind of initiation where we ritualize it to then become cloistered in a way in like a secret society. Initiation. But the idea of invitation as something we come to, something that invites us, that's why we're here. That is life with God. And so at its best, that is what we are striving for. That's what we're aiming to facilitate here. And so thank you again, Ashley, for that. And as we've been going through our candles and going through our time, we have explored different ways where we've looked at hope, we've looked at peace. Um, Kevin, you led us in a reflection on joy last week that opens up, broadens out what joy might even mean for us, how we experience it. And so in the invitations that we've had in this season I want to continue that as we look at our sermon series. We're finishing our sermon series uh, this week where we've been going through the genealogy of Matthew. And in that genealogy, we have explored uh, the women that are present in the genealogy in Matthew. We noted that in this genealogy, it's a little different than what you typically would expect. In Luke, there's a genealogy for Jesus, but it's all men. And it goes from oldest to youngest. The one in Matthew, it plays with the structure a little bit. So it starts with Jesus, it ends with Jesus. It also goes kind of backwards through the order that you would expect. And then it skips people. So it's grouped into three selected crafted groups of 14. And then even more than that, in that grouping, there are women included in it, which if you look at all the other genealogies in scripture, like, that is a, uh, that's an intentional crafting by the author in Matthew. He's saying something to us to challenge the ways that people show up in the lineage of Christ. The story of God is broader than our convention. And so what it does for us is it makes us think about outsiders coming in. It's structurally different in terms of who's coming in, it's that way. But even more than that, it, it, it engages us, it presses us to reflect on our view of humanity. How redemptive is the life of God? How redemptive is the person of Christ? And how far does that redemption reach? That's the question that this genealogy invites us to. And so in the manner of invitation... All of this is meant to challenge our expectations and communicate this simple truth. 
Christ's family tree is wider than we could possibly imagine. And every one of the stories that we encounter throughout this genealogy, they're trying to tell us that thing in different ways. So we looked at Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. All these stories are a little rough around the edges. Like, they're pretty gritty. Um, They're not necessarily the smoothest uh, stories. Um, I guess you could say, like, they have texture. They they have uh, meat to them. And they they don't paint a picture-perfect vision of life. They actually, they scope out a lot of brokenness. And in there, in the lineage of Jesus, it says, Christ is there. Christ's lineage can be found from that brokenness. Even so, with all the details that we've looked at during this series, we had, um, I opened with Tamar, we had Andrew Enders from our community share, Abby shared last week, so a variety of communicators opening for us. We looked at three resilient and resourceful women in Jesus' genealogy. And today, Christ's family tree tells us even more so that as those three women are included into the line of Christ, everyone has a seat at Christ's table. So if you would join me for prayer, just as we prepare our hearts, this word, I will say, is sitting a little heavy with me because we're talking about a character that... um, is, is rough. The story is rough. And I want to honor and own the space. The story we are going to talk about is a challenging story to engage. At the same time, I do hope that this is a word of healing and that we can hear it well. And so, um, yeah, join me for prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear from God. God, we are grateful for the gift of this day. We're grateful for this time to gather, for this moment in our week to pause. We come to you with open hearts. We come to you desiring to meet you. And we open ourselves to you and say, God, do your work in our lives. Bring healing where we need healing. Bring comfort where we need comfort. Bring conviction in the places that we need conviction. And send us with commission into the world to reflect you well. May this spoken word be faithful to your written word. Would it lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ? And we pray this with Christ by the Spirit. And everyone said, amen. So in 2017, um, Claire Hollingworth, does anyone know who she is? Claire Hollingworth died. She was 105. And she died um, in, surrounded by family, surrounded by people who love her, And she is a famous, famous English journalist during her career that spanned over 40 years. In her time, uh, she was a war correspondent. And so her life, her work was dedicated to reporting from the front lines. Before we had internet, before we had those things, she was posted up and she would call in. She would send things. She worked for the Daily Telegraph. That was kind of the first place she worked. And... She is known to have unearthed the scoop of the century. In journalism, they'll call this the scoop of the century. She was only seven days into her work as a full-time reporter. She was 27 years old, and she was sent from the Daily Telegraph to sit on the border 
of Germany and Poland. And this was in 1939. So she's there reporting, and a couple days before um, she sends this message, she had seen there's a windstorm, and kind of the sheets that had been along the forest that were blocking the view of all of the tanks that were about to invade. Uh, the screens got blown up, and so she was seeing the landscape that didn't look the most peaceful. In her words, she saw hundreds and hundreds of tanks lined up preparing for war. And so she sends a message back and writes a column. It doesn't get picked up too much. And then on September 1st, she is in her hotel room, and she's seeing and hearing tanks rolling down the street. World War II has just started. She's the first person to report on World War II. So she calls the British Embassy in Warsaw, and she says, hey, things are happening. This is getting real. There are things happening that, like, we cannot explain. There are tanks rolling down the street, and there are thousands of them. And you know what happened to her report? People said, that can't be true. Who are you to tell me that this is true? You're a woman speaking in this time. Um, you're only how many days into this job? You must have something mistaken. And so this is what she does. She says, listen. And she sticks the phone out the window to hear the rumbling of tanks. And she says, listen. Can't you hear it? Listen. Can't you hear it? Again, she would go on to continue devoting her life to being a war correspondent and reporting from the front lines. But she was the first person to report about World War II. And in her reporting, she had to re-engage and say, listen, can't you hear it? At Bethany, we follow a teaching team model for preaching where uh, we are one church expressed in different locations, six different locations. And so every uh, couple months, we'll gather for a teaching team retreat, plan out the series coming up. And as we were last spring looking ahead to this uh, series, we, we did a, a segment where essentially you pick a segment of time and you pitch an idea, and then we resonate, we plus one, and we... Um, will change and adapt based off what's there. So we kind of try and find resonance in terms of what's happening. And then every week from the broad scale, we meet as a team and we contextualize each message. So every week, if you go to Bethany, the six locations, you'll hear a different sermon from every location. The theme might be similar, but the way it's expressed, the way it's contextualized, that's all up to the communicator for the week and the location for the week. So that's kind of how preaching happens at Bethany. During this preaching retreat, um, one thing we did was, as we were pitching, we had multiple people this year converge and resonate with talking about the women of Advent, the women in Matthew's genealogy for this Advent season. And so we're going one by one, and it's like there's a lot of resonance here. There's a lot of resonance. A thing to note, though, was as we were diving into this, not everyone recognized the woman we're going to talk about today because she's easy to miss in the text. 
And so we had someone pitch and said, I wish there was another week. I wish we had four weeks and then Mary. I'm like, we do have four weeks and Mary, but it's easy to miss when we look at our passage. Our passage, it asks us the same question that Claire asks us. Listen, can't you hear it? Even as trained pastors, people who have gone to seminary, some of us in that room, we missed it. We didn't hear from Bathsheba, from the wife of Uriah. And so if you would, let's look at our text for the morning. This is Matthew 1, 5 to 7. Matthew 1, 5 to 7. This is what the NIV says. Verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. So this, we kind of dropped into the middle of a genealogy, but every one of these names are people that lead into the lineage of Christ. And as we look at this one, it's striking that we can easily miss the wife of Uriah in Christ's genealogy. Given the structure of genealogy, she's highlighted in a different way than the other women we've looked at so far. And we should take note, the author is writing with specific intent. Like, don't mistake this. The way that the author has played with who's in, who's out, that is all intentional. Still, one of the reasons we might overlook the wife of Uriah in Christ's lineage is because throughout Scripture, we can see a reference to her that normally calls her Bathsheba. She's normally referred to as Bathsheba all through Scripture. And so she shows up in multiple places in the Old Testament. One place is in, uh, in Kings. She shows up in Second Samuel. She shows up in Chronicles. She might be alluded to a little bit in, um, in the Psalms and in Proverbs. But most of the times that we see her mentioned, she's named and mentioned as Bathsheba by her name. But if we look at the actual writing here, what's even more striking is our English translations have tried to hone in for us that we are talking about this specific woman. The literal translation of the Greek for this passage is she of Uriah. So it doesn't even name her as wife. It just says, Solomon comes from she of Uriah. Doesn't name the relational status. Doesn't give her her name. Just relates her based on who has come from her. And so it's easy to miss. It's easy to overlook. And in that, the writer of Matthew is actually doing something that is profound. So we know that Bathsheba shows up all through the scriptures in different ways. She's named. One of the ways that she shows up in this text, in our text today for 2 Samuel 11, is she isn't named as often. In fact, they name her at the beginning of the story, and then she's referred to as the wife of Uriah the Hittite all through the story. There's this theologian, Anne E. Clement, and she talks about how as that's happening, the author is essentially giving us a hyperlink to her life. So from Matthew, she says, 
This phrase, the wife of Uriah, the one of Uriah, this is not supposed to bring you to the end of her story, where she's the queen mother. This isn't supposed to give you the moment where she gives birth to Solomon. Instead, this is supposed to bring you to the exact point when David violates her. That's what this phrasing in First Matthew's do, or in Matthew 1 is doing. It links us exactly to this period of time in her life when she's referred to as the wife of Uriah. So we don't want to overlook that there is redemption coming in her story in some form. But Matthew is saying, in the line of Christ, we're going straight to the brokenness. That is the moment where I can be found. That is the moment that leads to my birth. This moment in 2 Samuel 11. Again, in 2 Samuel, it rounds out her identity by describing her relational status. So we're going to look at our other passage today. This is the 2 Samuel passage. And as we're finding that passage, um, this is 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5. It'll be on the screen, but if you want to find it, pull it up. And as you're doing that, I want to name that, again, we are engaging conversation that is sensitive and hard. Um, We are going to be, for a brief moment, talking about uh, violence, um, and violence particularly of of a sexual nature. And so I do want to own that this space, if you feel uncomfortable in any way with what we're about to discuss, we'll talk about this for a couple minutes. And we also have people available to pray with you or process with you if you want to step out. Um, And so in the back, we have Thane and we have Beth and Jesse back in this one. They will respect your space and your privacy. Um, And so you could also just go get coffee too. By all means, you can do that. But we want to create space to know that as we talk about some sensitive topics for a couple minutes, that we're not doing it blindly. We want to honor that this can be hard. And part of why this shows up in Christ's story is because Christ's story transcends the easy moments of life and is present in the hard moments of life. Christ's presence is from the hardest moments to the easiest. Christ can be found in all of these places, in the raw, gritty moments of the story. So this is a story of loss. This is a story that is hard. And yet it is a story that is in our scriptures. And so if you would, let us look at 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5. In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabah. But David, he remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uh, uncleanness, and then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. 
This, friends, is God's Word. God's holy text written for us today. Bathsheba, she is a survivor. And this is a a harrowing story. Bathsheba is a survivor, and throughout Christian tradition, the challenge is that she hasn't always been preached in this way. This isn't really a worship song, but I think we would all know it. It certainly has a wide reach in our cultural imagination, but think about the famous song by Leonard Cohen, right? Hallelujah. We all know the chorus, at least. Here's the lyrics of the second verse. Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. So she tied you to a kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair. And from your lips, she withdrew the hallelujah. Again, famous song we all know. This isn't the story that we just read in 2 Samuel. This is not accurate to the story that has been given to us at all. But it is a story that has sometimes been preached as we've engaged this text in churches, even when the text tells us differently. I can remember hearing sermons. I mean, many of you all know my background. I went to church a lot, um, probably like three days a week, um, and then lots of youth things, lots of events. So a lot of sermons. Most of my life was spent in church. I can remember hearing sermons from well-meaning predominantly, most of the time, male pastors as a, as a teenager. And we would typically look at this text and focus on it in two ways. We'd look at verse 4 and we'd say, the text says, she came to him. So that must mean that there is some like mutuality in sin going on here. Like she could have said no. But instead she decided to cheat on her husband. And then after this, she knows that she's set for life because verse 5 tells us that she gloats to David, I am pregnant. I'm having your child. I've locked you in. So sometimes we would read her as almost like a gold digger, so to speak. That is the intention of her life. Who has crafted this perfect plan and she's executed it. This unfortunately is not an uncommon read of her and this story. I was uh, reading a really famous book um, in theology circles, especially as it comes to cultural anal- or analytics for um, Jesus' time. It's a book by Kenneth Bailey. He writes this book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. This book, in so many ways, is rich with culture, with helping us understand what's happening in the text. Specifically, probably the best section of the book is um, his section on uh, Advent and Christmas, talking about the manger and the inn. He does a lot of amazing historical work that can help us understand what's happening there. But I gotta say, his take on Bathsheba is not a good take. Because he talks about Bathsheba's shower as if it's this kind of planned power play. And he reads the encounter as a story of seduction. And then he sexualizes Bathsheba to make her complicit in King David's sin rather than a victim of his sin. And if you're familiar with the evangelical Christian tradition, this way of talking about Bathsheba is a fairly common way to unpack this passage. 
right, to read it in this way. And yet, look at the text and see what the story says to us. Verse 4, why did Bathsheba bathe? Because she was doing her monthly uncleanness, is what the text will say. It was her time of the month. And the text tells us directly that this happens, but in the scope of the story, it happens after the shower scene, it happens after the sex scene. And so sometimes we've just tended to miss this whole part of making sense of the things that come before. She's not trying to seduce the king. Like, this isn't an HBO show, right? Like, she is doing something that is regular, that's habitual. Another note of reimagination is virtually every time we imagine this scene, we imagine that Bathsheba is fully exposed. And so if you look throughout art history, through the Middle Ages especially, whenever the scene was depicted, it was depicted with Bathsheba uh, fully nude and probably showering with light in a way that accentuates her. That's the way that through art history that has been depicted to us. But again, the text just tells us that she bathed. If she's doing a ritual bath, which textually totally makes sense, there's a really strong argument to say, this was like a bidet type wash, rather than this public act of exhibitionism. This wasn't an act to entice a king. See how this changes every element of how we've read the story. The scandal of how this text reads us, you hear me say this all the time, as we read the text, how is the text reading us? The scandal of how this text works back on us is that the ways our reading of this passage uh, have been is up until recently, up until around the 2000s, most of the history of interpretation has tried to sexualize Bathsheba. And it has. It's pulled from art. It said, this is, this is what the scene looks like. The reality is, Bathsheba's washing, like it's not sexy. The text is just ambiguous enough, just ambiguous enough to allow us to make her responsible for David and for our own interpretations as readers. And this is where actually the genius of the story is that it buries the most crucial detail about her shower after the steamy action, so to speak. And in so doing it, it exposes the tendency for us as readers to see her in the exact same way that David sees her in the story. That's how this story is actually supposed to work. It's supposed to say, hey, look, let me paint the scene for you. This is the way that this happened. Oh, I'm going to give you a little detail that changes everything. But the fact that you've read the story in this way actually says more about us in our formation than it does about the story itself. Also note that this brings every, the focus, it brings everything for us to recognize just how tragic the story is. 
It's also a lot more realistic to how evil happens in this world. It oftentimes happens in the routine, in the everyday. It speaks to the brokenness that we experience. It can happen in the everyday portions of life. This is one of the hardest things to reconcile in this story. She's just doing something that is regular to her routine. I also want us to note that just as we read verse 5, in the following verses, Bathsheba, she, she will lose her husband. And then she'll move to the palace with the man who has given her a son. And then she'll lose her son. And she experiences like the lowest of the lows. So not only is she victimized, then she loses her husband. She loses her child. And she is named in Christ's genealogy. From the depths of loss. From the depths of brokenness. It's worth repeating to make this absolutely clear. Bathsheba, she is a survivor. And her story is a story of grace and grit. It's a story of resilience and resolve. It's a story of courage and the story of reclaiming agency after trauma. Friends, this is a story in our scriptures. With all the violence, the cruelty, the heartbreak, this story is in our scriptures. What's more, it's in Christ's story. It's in Jesus' genealogy. The first chapter of the New Testament. The first one that introduces, hey, this whole thing is about Jesus. Remember, it starts with Jesus, it ends with Jesus. Guess where Jesus can be found? In the depths of loss, in the depths of victimization, in the depths of brokenness, Christ hasn't let that place been untouched by his presence. In the season of Advent that anticipates Christ's experience of humanity itself, this story, again, it's in Christ's story. What's more, if you find the threads in your own story with Bathsheba's story, your story is also found in Christ's story. Sarah Koenig, she's a professor at SPU. Um, she has written extensively and actually spent over, over a decade specifically focusing on this story, on the character and person of uh, Bathsheba. And so she's written a lot. Um, she's done a lot of research and a lot of her, the history of interpretation. She's done a lot of work tracing out how have we talked about this woman in Scripture? I love what she says when she says that she doesn't want to minimize any of the experiences of harassment or assault that is in the text. But also, Bathsheba's story, however, reminds me that a person's story is larger than a single traumatic event. We don't want to minimize the effect and reach that something can have in our life. And we also want to recognize that the life of Christ, the life that we're called into, the life that's exhibited in this character, it extends beyond the event. Again, I ask us this morning, listen. 
Can we hear it? As Bathsheba in this story lives and breathes and has her being and transitions, we name that she shows up in 1 Kings, she shows up in Chronicles, she shows up, again, in uh, debatable, but probably in one of the Psalms at least. Another place where she shows up is in Proverbs 31. And Proverbs 31 is named as a, a proverb from King, uh, from King Solomon based off the wisdom of his mother. And one of the things that shows up in that, um, in that psalm is that she helps Solomon become, become the king. She's the queen mother. And as he's describing the wisdom of his mom, he says, she opens her mouth with, with, with wisdom and in her tongue is the law of kindness. She opens her mouth with, with wisdom and in her tongue is the law of kindness. Think about all she's had to endure. Think about her life. And yet her son, as she, he looks up at his mom, says, I see kindness in you, even though you've experienced the worst of the worst. You live by an ethic that challenges all convention. You open your mouth and wisdom comes out. Solomon, if we know through the scriptures, is known as the one who expounds with wisdom. He's, he's full of wisdom. He gets that from his mom. And the, the beauty of this highlight in Proverbs 31, it tells us that we're never bound to the single event that can be traumatizing in our life. Story of God and the story of Christ's redemption starts there reaches as far down there and also presses us out from there. And I know that it might not be us, it might not be in, in us specifically, but we all know people who have experienced the worst of the worst. This text and this person hits home in profound ways because in my family history, there are survivors, both female and male, in my immediate family. And so we think about this story and say, how does she find the law of kindness? How does she find the wisdom to discern? She does it with a faith that opens her up to give birth to Christ. She does it with a faith that opens her up to be the invitation to Christ. Her story, it speaks to us from this genealogy to say, can we hear Christ in the brokenness that we experience? Your brokenness, the things you've experienced, the traumas might not be to the extent of Bathsheba in this story. But we've all experienced loss. The inclusion of Bathsheba in this story reminds us particularly that Christ is there. And from those worst moments, Christ can be born again. 
we often talk about the Christian faith as a life of being born again, of coming to be renewed and rebirthed. The story of the genealogy is that Christ, before we are reborn, has already given birth from the depths and the worst parts of humanity. And it's to this world that Christ comes. I'll be honest with this sermon. I was wrestling with this one until really early this morning. Very early. And um, as we are here gathering, I never quite got a sense of how to land the plane. And so if you would actually embody the practice with me of how to land the plane on a text this deep, with space that's opened up. Let us meditate on this word in silence for about a minute. Let us reflect on this text and this word from God. Friends, throughout this series, from the first week, we have looked at these gritty stories in Christ's line. And we framed out a framework of how we engage hard texts from the first day. Sometimes we can read a story like this and we can read it as a word of comfort. Because in the midst of the brokenness that we have experienced or that we've witnessed, we can find Christ's presence there. It is a word of comfort to know that beyond a single traumatic event, we can find life and life can come. So sometimes we need to engage this story and this kind of story as a word of comfort. We also recognize that sometimes these texts are convicting us. They're pressing in on faults that we may have. And we want to name that this text does the same thing there. It is a word of comfort. It is also a word of conviction. But most importantly, it also moves us from comfort and from conviction to commission. It moves us to take this word, this birthing of Christ in the genealogy, and it invites us to share that in a way that transforms our very reality, transforms the world around us. And so, as we come and as we worship, 
as we sing this song that we will, I want to invite you to be meditating on how this story and this series particularly, how it's landed on you. Has it been a word of comfort? Has it been a word of conviction? What is it commissioning us into and you into in your life? Let us, uh, let us pray. And if you would like someone to pray with you, just to process with you, again, we'll have Thane and Beth and uh, Jesse. They're available at the back. Um, we wanted to set up space to engage and be engaged with if that's something you desire. Even just as a, as a prayer of support. So there's space available for you. But let us reflect on this word in this series. And then we'll uh, continue on and close out our service. God, we're grateful for the gift of this day. We're grateful for how you, in your word, open us up. You open us up to your working. You open us up through your invitation to redemption. You open us up to be loved and to love you more. And so we pray that as we reflect on your texts in the weeks to come, as we come to Christmas, as we come to all the joyful moments of what is typically a season of delight, that for those of us in this room that need a restoration of that, you would do just that work. That you would make life new. That you are God who creates and you can create out of nothing. That's the God that we serve. And so we pray, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray this with Christ by the Spirit. Everyone said amen.